Welcome to Law Light, a quick dose of legal levity as we shine some light on the heartbeat of the legal field. I'm Melinda Delmonico, CEO of Gibson Arnold and Associates, and today I'm, I'm joined by Jennifer Simon for our Women in Leadership series in-house. Jennifer Simons is the Senior Vice President and Chief Administrative Officer, General Counsel and Corporate Secretary of Parker Drilling. She was appointed General Counsel and Corporate Secretary in 2018 after serving as the General Manager of the company's Atlantic Canada Division based in St. John's, Newfoundland. Prior to her operations management role, she served in various legal counsel roles since joining the company in 2010. Ms. Simons has more than 15 years of international oil and gas experience. She holds a JD from the University of Houston School of Law and also a Bachelor of Arts in Literature from the University of Houston. So Jennifer, welcome. So grateful to have you today. Thank you. It's good to be here with you today, Melinda. I'm I'm honored to be asked. I've I've enjoyed listening to the podcast so far and, and look forward to future episodes as well. Well, it's a special day to have you, and I uh, would like to kick this discussion off for you to discuss basically your current role and a little bit, a little bit about Parker Drilling. Sure. So um, as a member of our company's executive leadership team, uh, I work closely um, with our board and our owners to grow the company. Um, and in my role as CAO, I get the chance to build and empower competent and confident, committed teams that help us execute our strategic plan. So my teams are responsible for legal and enterprise risk, compliance, integrity, ESG, quality, HSE, and and several other things um, to support operations. And um, our company, Parker Drilling, um, has been around since 1934 and started out as a drilling company in Oklahoma and has since grown um, to include more service and product offerings um, in wellbore construction. So uh, we're, a, we're a global company um, and range you know, from, from 1,500 to 3,000 employees, depending on, on how the market is, is uh, performing. So I've watched your career for a number of years and, and I'd love our audience to know a little bit about your history. Okay, so um, prior, as you know, Melinda, since you recruited me over to Parker Drilling 11 years ago, I was previously with a law firm in Houston called Chamberlain Herdlicka and um, had the opportunity to work on um, several uh, clients that were mostly in the oil and gas engineering and project management spaces um, and really got a, a unique opportunity to work on you know, kind of the commercial and transactional side, as well as litigation and arbitration and other dispute resolution. Um, And I thought that was a lot of fun, um, but I tended to be more on the backside when things had gone wrong for our clients. And so I was really interested in moving into a business where I could be more on the creation side and and problem avoidance side, as opposed to, to dealing with the problems after they happened. So I was very pleased to come over to Parker um, in kind of a junior counsel role, um, but reporting to the the general counsel at the time. And I've had the opportunity over my career at at Parker to take a new role about every, you know, 18 months to two years um, over the last 11 years. Um, And even, you know, taking a role that had more of a a business development focus on building our business in um, Atlantic Canada and then had the opportunity to move along with my family 
um, to St. John's Newfoundland, um, start our, our operation for Exxon uh, and an offshore platform there, Hibernia, one of the largest platforms in the world, um, and got to spend two years there before coming back to Houston in the general counsel role. So did you shape your career or did your career shape you? I love, I love this question. Um, you know, I've learned so much over uh, my, my career from mentors and colleagues and employees and, and from my own professional wins and losses. Um, but the way I conduct myself in business, uh, my orientation toward values and how I interact with other people, how I adapt to my professional challenges um, has been significantly shaped by my faith, by my experience as a foster parent and adoptive parent, uh, my family and my community. So um, I've certainly been shaped both. I, I've shaped my career and my career has shaped me, uh, but forced to choose, I'd, I'd say I've shaped my career more than the other way around. Well, and I, I, I've watched as you've developed and taken on more and more aspects of the business. What a fantastic opportunity for an in-house lawyer, because so many lawyers, you know, are seeking growth opportunities. And, and you've had uh, such a, a beautiful career, just a Parker, with expanding and taking on more. And I, I have to say that I think that that is uh, indicative, a bit of shaping. I mean, having opportunity, but that you stepped up and were able to move in all these different directions for the corporation. Without a doubt, I would be a different general counsel if I hadn't had that PNL experience in Atlantic Canada. Um, it's very easy sitting in an office hundreds or thousands of miles away from, from the cold face to you know, create policies and procedures or to judge a decision that someone's made when you don't have an appreciation of the speed and complexity of running uh, a, a business. And, um, and so I do think that as a lawyer, I was significantly changed by that experience. What are your biggest career learnings? Um, you know, I... <laughs> I've certainly developed some, you know, technical ex expertise um, based on the the, the situations that the business has found itself in and the challenges that we face. So, you know, uh, obviously, again, that that PL responsibility role was uh, was huge, uh, a huge learning for me. Um, learning how to maximize leverage in a commercial ne negotiation that was big um, working through a, a chapter 11 reorganization those were all kind of technical lessons um, but the lessons that really stick with me are the lessons I've learned about working with people um, and those are the lessons I continue to learn every single day uh, if I ever start thinking I'm I'm an expert on on people um, I find out very quickly that that's not the case um, so, you know, lessons about building reciprocal trust with coworkers and learning that from roustabouts to CEOs, we're all humans and we all have insecurities and we all have bosses and we all have weaknesses um, and that no one, you know, has it all figured out. And, and I really think those lessons are important because it, it helps me remember um, and make decisions that, that recognize that every person has a different piece of the puzzle to offer. Um, so I, I think it's those people lessons um, that are the biggest. Yeah, and it sounds like, you know, recognizing that they all have a piece of the puzzle is about humility as well. 
right? So you yes. see that everyone is contributing no matter what their role is in an organization. Exactly. What are the what are your greatest challenges as a woman in leadership? You know, um, it it can be exhausting to um, expend the the intellectual and emotional resources required to be the only woman in the room, uh, trying to find the most impactful yet constructive way to improve diversity and equity and inclusion in an organization. It can be exhausting, but I've only ever been a woman. So I think it can be tempting to fantasize about how much better someone else has, has it than you have it because they have different privileges than you have. Um, and, you know, when I think about moving to Atlantic Canada, I certainly encountered people who were quite negative about a woman being in the general manager role there. Um, but if I hadn't been a woman, people likely would have found some other reason to be upset about the change of Parker drilling coming to town. Right. So really, I I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the challenges of being a woman leader. I'd really rather focus my effort on how to use my own privilege to help someone else who doesn't have that privilege. Um, Just as throughout my career, I've, I've been blessed to work for male leaders who use their privilege to benefit me and to build me up. And, you know, I'm blessed to live in a time when it's increasingly safe professionally and otherwise to speak about inequality. Um, so, you know, I, I really prefer to focus there on, on using my privilege and where I'm sitting to, to help the next person come up. And when you think about you know, being the only woman in a room, for example, in a meeting, are there tips that you would give women to help them uh, just with integrating into a business situation when you walk into the room and maybe they're new to leadership? Yeah, um, you know, there's there's a lot of minefields uh, when when you kind of give general uh, advice to, to women leaders because um, we're all a little sensitive about the topic and, and whatever advice someone gives may trigger some, you know, unpleasant, uh, you know, memory or, or anecdote. And, and it's very easy to poke back and say, look, that's not a fair, fair commentary, but that's okay. I'm happy to wade in, into the water and, um, and just say, you know, what I've observed both from myself and from other, uh, female leaders around me. Um, one is I think being the only woman in the room or the only whatever in the room, right? You're the only veteran in the room or you're the only person with a visible disability in the room or you're the only you know, person of color in the room. Um, it can be very hard to find the right balance about how often to speak up and with what level of um, you know, authority or deference in a room and, and it can feel like this might be my only chance to make a mark. This might be my only chance to say something. So I better take it. Um, and I think that it's better um, to take a breath and wait and observe and listen and, um, you know, invest the time in learning about the particular uh, characteristics of this particular group and how the group communicates before you hop right in. So I've seen some people speak far 
not, not, not often enough, right? They don't speak up because they think I'm lucky to be here. Um, so I'm just going to sit and not say anything. And that's, that's a miss because when you have someone come in with a different perspective, they often have very good things to add. I've also seen people come in and speak way too much and with way too much authority uh, in, in the voice when they may not know enough about the situation or the group. So I think just taking time, listening um, and, and calming down uh, a little bit in meetings. And then the other big one that I would say, I observe when I go out to lunch, outside the office, that it's mostly men having lunch outside the office. And so I think there can sometimes be pressure for women to think, I have to work the hardest, I have to work the most hours, I have to make every second of the day impactful for my work product. And I think it's, it's good to go out to lunch. <laughs> it's good to take a break. That is excellent advice. <laughs> what, what factors make a great leader? So many. I, I recently saw a list of a, the 101 top characteristics of a good leader. <laughs> 101 top characteristics. So um, there must be infinite characteristics of a good leader, but it really was a good list. Um, and as I was looking through them and, and thinking about um, how difficult it is to find someone who encompasses all of these characteristics, um, it, 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 it makes me think about how hard it is to recruit good leaders and to, and to be a good leader. But of all those 101 characteristics, I think there are some kind of underlying currents that are relevant to many of them and, and that I've observed from, from the good leaders I've worked for and with. Um, the first goes back to that topic you mentioned earlier, Melinda, humility. Um, I think that being honest with yourself about your gaps and being sure you surround yourself with the people who fill those gaps and then trusting them, right? Rather than trying to displace them or be everything to the situation, surround yourself with the right people so that you have a, a, you know, a complete and robust uh, team. Um, Related to that, uh, keeping your focus on people. I think it's uh, really easy to, to kind of, as you progress in your career, to get very focused on spreadsheets and numbers and, um, and processes and lose track of the importance of recruiting and pe keeping people engaged and being observant about signs of distress and communicating enough. Um, and then the third thing I would say is to remain driven, um, that it can be easy if we reach a certain point in our career that we were driving for to become a little bit complacent. Um, and so I think we've got to find ways to remain driven. Yeah. Um, wonderful <laughs> comments about that. And I, I, I think that your, your comment about, about people and being able to surround yourself with the proper team seems like that is always the biggest challenge and being in the staffing industry you know that's what we work towards is helping identify what's the right culture but then you look at skills and, and the fit and the esoteric aspects of being human and what do you bring to the table and that self-awareness becomes so important right and coming onto a team and a leader that has that ability to really assess that uh, and pull together a group is an amazing leader in my mind. So I, I really appreciate your thoughtful comments on that. 
What does your self-care routine look like? Speaking of lunch. <laughs> yeah, as my stomach is growling. Um, I sleep. I sleep plenty of hours every night. It means I stop looking at emails by about nine o'clock at night. And I turn off notifications on my phone between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. So people know they have to call me twice if it's a real emergency. Um, but I, I sleep. I guard that time to sleep and, and make sure that my body gets, gets that rest. Um, I eat well. Um, managing my weight has always been a challenge for me. So I, I try to find that right balance of of eating, eating well and, and managing my health, but also making sure I regularly enjoy my favorite restaurants and wines. Um, those are important parts of my life. So I, I guard that as well. Um, and I prioritize my mental health. So these days, you know, I limit slash avoid social media, cable news, talk radio, um, and just keep it out, right? And you can be informed by reading newspapers uh, and, and not keeping yourself inundated with the constant outrage. Um, and, you know, I, I balance in office and remote work. I'm fortunate to work for a company that, that we support that for people to, to work in office or, or remotely kind of in a balanced way. And, um, and I, I carve time out to walk and practice mindfulness. And it, it's, you know, a lot of making sure I protect time for myself. Um, that's not fully you know, stress laden. There's, there's plenty of stress in the other hours of the day. I know. And, and I love that you're, you're talking about turning off everything and having a break from all the, the noise, right? Cause there's a lot of it between online and, and everything else that we do. And I, I always, I often wonder you know, with this generation of youngsters coming up and, you know, when with the um, iPhones and the internet and so forth, if they, if, if people really understand that true break, because prior to having all that, what did people do, right? <laughs> they were with themselves and they didn't have the constant internet. So it seems that that self-care, that part of your self-care is so critical to have that. Yeah. Break. yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I see, you know, my kids are connected to devices, obviously, more than I was at, at their age, because uh, we didn't have them. Um, but uh, they they don't seem as as troubled by what they see and what they read, because they say, well, yeah, I mean, everybody's out to get you upset about something. So, you know, they just kind of brush it aside. And, and I find that people my age and, and older tend to get more sucked into the perpetual outrage and righteous indignation. And it's very addicting to kind of have that adrenaline flow of outrage and and I don't think it's good for us so I think it's a, I think it's a good thing to turn it off yeah and I think also with with corporate America and, and just humans in general adapting to this new world and here we still have the COVID going on but we're moving slowly into um, clearing that out and vaccinations and alignment so hopefully the outrage will calm down when all of that is complete. <laughs> I really, really hope so. So what inspires you? Um, the big questions, the problems that seem impossible to solve and the people who go out and, and go about solving them anyway. You know, so, so in my industry, 
Um, I'm fortunate to work alongside, you know, working groups and customers and, uh, and, and others to think about how do we meet the intense global demand for energy that lifts people out of poverty and promotes healthcare and, and promotes education while also turning the tide of climate change. This seems like an impossible problem. And yet there are people that go about solving it every day. And, and I love that. And I'm inspired by that. Uh, in my service work, you know, it's how, do, how are we going to end the HIV epidemic? Um, how do we help families and individuals avoid and or recover from foster care? Um, how do we build people up to be more self-sufficient? All of these kind of you know, societal, global questions that just seem impossible, um, but aren't because we're humans and, and as humans, we're innovative and we find solutions and, and uh, I love it. I, I'm inspired by, by those questions. Yeah, that is fantastic. And I noticed that you serve on a board of directors, on the board of directors for an AIDS foundation in Houston. I do. I, I think this is my third year um, on the board, and um, what a what an amazing organization! Um, they they were one of the first AIDS service organizations um, in the country, and um, and you know we have the tools available to us today to end the HIV ep epidemic. Um, they exist. You know, we don't have a good vaccine yet, um, but we do have other methods of preventing the spread of, of, of infection. Um, and, and so in our lifetimes, we could see this epidemic end um, in our community here uh, in the greater Houston area and globally. And um, so the work that we're doing is, is very important. And um, I'm really thrilled to be able to work with such a great team. Well, Jennifer, thank you. Thanks for being on the program today. So delighted to have you. And thank you for this robust discussion. Thank you, Melinda. It was a pleasure to talk to you. So thank you to our guest, Jennifer Simons, for joining me today. And thank you so much for tuning in to Law Life from Gibson Arnold and Associates. Please like us and subscribe to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating to let us know how we're doing. We look forward to connecting with you again on our next episode. Your voice for the